And we'll pick up in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to look at verses 15 through 24 this morning. The title of my sermon is Rightness Found. Key words for our worshipers in training are righteous, wicked, and cursed. Now, you've often heard me compare Christianity to religion. And many would look at those and say that they're one and the same. I would argue otherwise. Now, I understand that in the book of James, James uses this language. He talks about pure and undefiled religion. Often in the writings of the Reformers, they talked about our true religion being that of Christianity. But I want to set the gospel in opposition to what most of us understand religion to be. I think this is the very thing that Jesus did with the Pharisees. Before Jesus was on the scene, remember, and we seem to often forget this because we don't have a lot of the picture of what was going on with the Pharisees before Jesus showed up. But the Pharisees looked... To most people, to have a good reputation, they were, uh, they were pious, they had a lot of good works, they followed the law to the T in their mind externally, they were seen mostly in a positive light by all who were around them. They were the conservative theologians of their day. But what did Jesus do? How did he respond to them? He showed up and he blew up everything that they were doing. He pointed back to the reality of the gospel that had been foretold since the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 and made very clear that it was now being fulfilled in him, the awaited Messiah. He was very forceful. He was very direct. And all that he said to the Pharisees was to disassemble their religion with the truth of the gospel. Very truth that we'll talk about later. So I want to propose to you that the religion of the Pharisees and all religion to include most of what is grouped in Western evangelicalism is completely opposed to biblical Christianity. Here's the difference. Religion is based upon works, is based upon law, is based upon moral adherence. And all of these group together, some being biblical, some not. Some being the law of God, some elevating the law of God beyond what God has given us, some being a law all of its own. Religion is an adherence to a legalistic pursuit in an attempt to please God and to be right with God. That is, I would suggest to you, every single religion. Hence why I say Christianity should not be placed in that category. 
Because the difference is we're not seeking legalistic fulfillment. We're seeking by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, our redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, every religion foundationally asks the question, how is it that I can be right with God? Now, true biblical Christianity answers that question completely different than all the religions of the world, to include what we may call evangelicalism in much of the West. So that question, how can I be right with God? Religion, in one way, shape, or form, the answer comes back to what most of us know as karma. Biblical Christianity, on the opposite side, answers that question, how can I be right with God? We are right with God by the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So religion's pursuit is if I follow the rules. If I do good things, I get good results. If I do bad things, I get bad results. So I follow religious rules, and in the end, I'm right with God if I do enough good things and I get whatever, heaven, nirvana, 72 virgins, I become a god of my own and populate my own planet, whatever it is. If bad... I get annihilated, purgatory, whatever that is. In essence, this idea of karma, the idea of religion, is the idea of the cosmic scales. God takes my good deeds and he takes my bad deeds and he weighs them in the legal scales to see which one wins. Now, most people, I will admit, are not going to use this language when talking about their understanding of their attempts at being right with God. Some just assume this. Think of Job's friends. Not great friends, were they? Job, you're suffering, and we don't know why, but we can only assume, and here's our assumption, that you have done something against God, and as a result, He's punishing you. It's not what happened at all, right? Job was a righteous and upright man. His suffering had a different reason altogether. But their assumption was karma. You've done something bad, you get bad in return. Figure out what the bad is, start doing good, you will get good in return. Some give themselves over to all-out Eastern mysticism. Yin-yang, good and bad. Same thing, karma. I realize most don't admit this because they don't realize it. But I want to suggest to you that all of us, in some way, shape, or form, fall into this from time to time. Many Christians reject the idea of karma, but functionally act as if that's exactly how God operates. I didn't read my Bible on Tuesday. I'm going to get punished. In other words, anything that we do, knowingly or unknowingly, that is is an attempt to earn our salvation is religion. It's karma. It is completely opposed 
to biblical Christianity. So in the passage we're in this morning, Solomon addresses this and he points to the futility of thinking in that way. Karma-based religion is what he is pointing to in the text. It is self-righteousness. And if we understand God's holiness rightly, we quickly realize self-righteousness gets us nowhere fast. If we're measuring in the scales, if one bad deed ends up in the bad side, we're done. God is holy and perfect. It's not a good way to go. Well, let's look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, if karma is the world's operating system, it's not working very well. If this is how the world works, if this is how the world is governed, it is terribly flawed. It is broken. Solomon says, trust me, let me remind you once again, I've seen it all, I've done it all. More money than you, bigger parties than you, more houses, more gardens, you name it, he's done it. I've seen it all. And in the midst of this, Solomon has seen the righteous perish and evildoers go on. So people who love, serve, and honor God suffer. People who hate, dishonor, and curse God live long and die easy. Karma doesn't work. The cosmic scales are broken. Just watch the news. How many children are killed in a drive-by shooting? How many Christians are murdered each day because of their faith? Perhaps most horrific, how many unborn children are mercilessly slaughtered at the hands of wicked medical doctors because they were deemed unwanted and an inconvenience? Where's the karma there? It's not there. Because it doesn't exist. And so Solomon sets up for us this idea of religion. It doesn't work. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So Solomon points to a right that's wrong. A right that is wicked. It's being right in your own eyes. This is self-righteousness. Now, let me say this up front. This is why this is very difficult. Because all of us are going to hear this and say, Yeah, get them! Because I have someone in mind who I'm, uh, who I'm hearing about when we talk about self-righteousness. And if you're thinking this is not you, I'm probably talking to you. We could, do, uh, we could do a Jeff Foxworthy here. 
if you make sure to pray loud enough before a meal so the entire restaurant can hear and see you, you might be self-righteous. Okay, we can make a whole list of those things. But here's what we mean by overly righteous or self-righteous. The self-righteous are the nice, sanctimonious, tight-shoed, pursed-lipped, stickler, unsufferable, prudish, know-it-all, ostentatious, quiet time every day or I'll go to hell, conceited, unchristian Christians. You know, the ones who run to Jesus on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, I led a Bible study in my living room. I went to church every Sunday, even when I was sick. I prayed with my children as I tucked them into bed. I gave food to the food pantry. I serve the poor. And Jesus looks at them and says, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That's a game changer, isn't it? It just got a whole lot more serious. Luke sixteen fifteen, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Not one of us wants to run to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at what I have done. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian will be saved in the end. Are you tracking with that? That's very, very important. And to be very honest, it leaves me terrified for some of you. Because I think there will be many surprises on Judgment Day. And I don't want that for you. And I love you enough to tell you if you're not walking and quacking like the duck you say you are. I don't know how many times you've told someone who claims to be a believer in Christ that the reality of their lives points to the fact that maybe they're not. It's not an easy conversation. It doesn't typically go over really well. But listen, if we truly believe the Bible, if we really believe in the judgment of God that is already upon those who have not repented and do not believe the gospel, is it loving at all that we would allow someone to claim faith and ignorance that they do not actually possess? That they are depending on and hoping on? That's wicked. Look, we don't need to be the salvation police that walk around telling everyone who's in and who's not. That's very, well, (laughs) self-righteous. But there are times that that conversation needs to be had. The Lord gives us many different diagnostic tools in the Bible to help a person see where they are at. And I fear that some of us might be found lacking. Not in our works. There's always plenty of works amongst church people. But in true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, our only hope. 
The day of judgment will reveal the rottenness of religion. And it will be proved that being safe in Christ is a lot more than claiming to be something. It's a self-righteous man who flatters himself with his claims of salvation in spite of a life that proves otherwise. He may have feelings, he may have convictions, he may have desires of a spiritual kind, but these are what he rests in and not Christ. He never really breaks free of his sin. He never truly breaks free from the world. He never lays hold of Jesus. He never takes up his cross. He is a hearer of the truth, but he is depending on his own self-worth and his own production of righteousness. We hear it in some form or another all the time. I've never, whatever, killed, stolen, blown stuff up, shot up school children, take money from my job, whatever it is, I've never done that. I have found a right standing with God. No, you found the common grace of God because you are capable and wicked in your heart and it is willing to do every one of those things and far worse. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus taught? Let's think of it in these terms. Two men come to church on the Lord's Day for worship. One is a devoted religious man. The other, a recently released ex-convict. The religious man came with his shirt tucked in, his hair combed, and he sat on the front row ready to take notes. The other came in late and sat alone in the back. Worship began and soon got to a time of confession. The ex-con couldn't help himself. He began to weep loudly and ask repeatedly, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The religious man took the opportunity to pray out loud. Lord, thank you that I am not like other men. Thieves, liars, adulterers, murderers. Thank you, Lord, that I have the discipline to stay away from those things and to read my Bible and pray daily and to teach Sunday school and give money to the church. Thank you that my sins are not such that I am left to weep loudly in the midst of those who are righteous. Luke 18, what's Jesus say? I tell you, The man who weeps and seeks mercy, the one in the back of the church, he goes home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the entire point of what Solomon's driving at. There is a kind of right that is completely wrong. How does he know? He's tried it. The more right he tried to do to justify himself, the longer his spiritual nose grew so that he could look down at others. And what was the result? The end of verse 16. Destruction. 
the wrong kind of right will destroy you. As we have just looked at, because it's not right at all. It's wicked, and in the end, as a result, your religion will send you to hell. Look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay, so he said, do not be overly righteous. Now, don't be overly wicked. When you pursue self-righteousness, you don't find a right standing with God. In In fact, you find something that is very, very wrong. The flip side of that, when you seek to do nothing at all as a fool or to do that which is wicked, you hit a wall there also. Now, obviously, God will not delight in that which is wicked. It is self-destruction. So Solomon's not saying here, you can do a few wicked things, but just don't go overboard. That's not what he means by don't be overly wicked. That's exactly what the world promotes, right? Sow your wild oats, cheat a little here and there, but just don't go overboard. As long as you don't get caught and nobody gets hurt, no harm, no foul. That's what the world teaches us. And we are all ready to do just that. We think we deserve to do as we please instead of what we ought. We think we're entitled to draw our own conclusions about what's right. And what's wrong? And while it may be illegal, while it may be wicked, as long as it's not too overboard, we paint what's black and white with gray and seem to try and walk a line that was never there in the first place. So Solomon's not saying, you can have a little wickedness, just don't, just don't go overboard. He knows full well that there is plenty within us all. So instead, the instruction is that we not give ourselves over to it. In the context of discussing what wisdom is, Solomon asks, would it be wise to indulge sin? His answer, why should you die before your time? It's no nearer to wisdom than a pursuit of your own righteousness. The end of both is death. So what is the antidote to our religiosity and wickedness? Look at verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The fear of God. If a man sincerely fears God as God, he will not fall into the foolishness of karma-driven religiosity. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. The man who is wise, the man who fears God will understand when true rightness is found. He will avoid the wickedness of the world. He will continuously fight to overcome the innate desire to be self-righteous. And Solomon gives us a little sigh of relief here, and he says, you know what? I admit, this is tough. Don't think I'm giving you something easy here. This This is tough. 
The strength to do this comes from profound wisdom. And when you are walking wisely on this difficult path, you are proving to have more wisdom than ten presidents. It's incredibly complex. Here's why. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. One author wrote, The religious bustle of those who do not know God can be considerable. The lies, pretenses, and hypocrisies can be polished up to shine like marble. And one of the great pretenses in all the activity is the notion that the people involved in all the holy hubbub do not sin, but everyone sins. Judge men according to Scripture and not by appearance down at the church. Everyone sins. It seems crazy that those of us who have received the grace of God by the very nature of admitting that we are broken, lost sinners are the very ones who seek to appear as though we're all cleaned up and have it together. That is a very common pursuit of all of us. Why not be honest? We're broken. We are sinful. We are hurting and we are hurting others. And we need Christ. So Solomon backs us into a corner. He says, don't be self-righteous. Don't be wicked, but be righteous. And oh, by the way, you're sinful. You will never do this because of your sin. You can't. To do so is to harness the power of the wisdom of ten kings. It isn't going to happen. And look, he goes on to expose their self-righteousness all the more. Look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Have you ever had anyone say something about you that wasn't true or it was ill-intentioned or meant to discredit you and destroy your credibility? I've had that once or twice. Solomon is pointing to those times and he is saying, think about how angry you get when you find out someone has something nasty to say behind your back. Now, come on, let's be honest. Your first reaction when you hear these sorts of things isn't, I wonder if there's any merit to what's being said. Maybe they have a point. If that's how you think, I want to know what the secret is. Because I know my first thought is usually something along the lines of trying to justify from the book of Joshua that the person is occupying air that's mine to breathe, so they need to be taken out. Now, thankfully, so far, I haven't killed anyone. Listen, I just tried to justify it. At least I haven't killed anybody. (laughs) Didn't we just talk about that? So here's Solomon's point before we get too off track. You will be confronted with junk in your life. Maybe in a healthy way like we talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe through gossip. Maybe through overhearing someone's conversation about you. Maybe reading it in a newspaper or on the internet. Whatever it is, you are going to throw a spiritual and maybe even a physical tantrum without stopping to think and realize, yeah, I've done that to other people, too. I talk about other people like that. 
I've gossiped. I've lied. I've torn them down. But instead of thinking about that, we instead start to enumerate all the good that we think we've done. And we bury the fact that our anger is over something that we've done thousands of times before. So now it's on us. We're busted. Self-righteousness found. There is a zeal for righteousness which does not know its own spirit. So don't be quick to apply the disciplinary process of Matthew 18 to everything that moves. Look at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So Solomon says, you know what? I've sought to figure this thing out. I really thought I could wisdom my way through it. Solomon thought he could figure out how to avoid the wickedness and self-righteousness and find a righteousness that was good and honoring to God. I remember as a young believer, I thought at some point that I was going to master Christianity. I just needed to know all that I could. Read a lot, pray a lot, go to church a lot, and I'd have it down. I was going to be a super Christian. But that doesn't work too well because super Christians are super failures and they are super self-righteous. So I, like Solomon, learned very quickly, you will not master this thing. You won't figure it all out. And do you know how frustrating that can be for an over-competitive person that wants to be the best and win at everything? It will crush you if you don't understand it rightly. You will be destroyed by the weight of trying to make it work. When you try to be right, it will go wrong. When you do nothing, you will fall into wickedness. No matter what you do on your own, it is not going to work because you are self-righteously striving. It is the wrong kind of right. So what can we do? It seems like we're left in a terrible, rock-hard place scenario with no place out. No matter what we do, there's no way out, and that's correct. No matter what we do, there's no way out. Because it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done. I love that in the Bible, the New Testament answers the questions of the Old Testament. So here is our problem. I can't be right with God on my own terms. The right that I seek to do is wrong. Karma doesn't exist, so my good deeds are no gain at all. Doing nothing at all leads me to wickedness. And most damning, God's standard is perfection. And I am far from it. It seems so hopeless because in the midst of this, we are striving for our definition of good, trying to flee from our definition of bad, and we end up in the constant cycle of frustration. Something must interrupt the cycle. Something must intercede because it's complete futility otherwise. Let's end on Romans 8. Go to Romans chapter 8.
Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Solomon says, my good isn't good enough. My bad is worse than I think it is. And what I think I do right is actually wrong. And now Paul says, no condemnation. For who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. No more karma. No more yinning and yanging. In Christ, there is no condemnation. He lived a perfect life. He was not self-righteous. He was not wicked. And every sin of his people was punished as he received the wrath of the Father. Our rightness is found in Christ. And all that is wrong with you is found perfectly right in Christ. It, it does not make you righteous, but it counts you to be righteous by, by what He has done on your behalf. His work, His life, counted to you as righteousness. So we can stop chasing our tails, trying to do enough good to make God happy. It won't work. And listen, as a result of this, if we are in Christ, God loves you. Not a future version of what you might become. Not what He sees you becoming. And in the meantime, He has a scowl on His face. And He sometimes regrets saving you. He loves you. As you are. And he is doing a great work to conform you more and more and more into his image and life. This is where biblical Christianity departs from all the religions of the world. And it's one simple word. Grace. It's not about what you have done. It's about what Christ has done on your behalf. Payment made. Penalty served. You in Christ are not guilty because he who was not guilty was made guilty on your behalf that you would have a right standing before the Father. And as a result, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're born under the law. Our our hearts are bound up in the law of sin and death. We are set free in Christ. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The bill has been paid. Sin has been punished for those in Christ Jesus. He has absorbed the Father's wrath. 
Our requirement is to live up to the righteous and perfect standard of God's law, and it has been fulfilled in Jesus because you could not do it. It has been paid in full. It is grace. Now, here's our problem with that. We keep running back to our default setting. Now, right now, we're all sitting here, we're feeling good about grace It sounds great, but as soon as we start living life outside of our gathered worship, as soon as we start getting it wrong and sinning and getting into discussions, we go right back to our default. Karma. Over and over and over again, that's where we go. Oh no, my car broke down. Of course it did. I said a cuss word yesterday. I sent someone money anonymously, so now I'm waiting for a raise at at work. Jesus loves me, this I know, because I never miss a quiet time. I listen to five sermons per week. I teach a Sunday school class. I go to two Bible studies, and I'm friends with him on Facebook. We go back to our default so easily when we're not preaching to ourselves the gospel of grace. Reminding ourselves daily hourly, minute by minute, that something actually happened at the cross of Christ. Jesus actually purchased something for me and for you, and we can live fully upon this reality instead of the futility of religion. And I think the majority of us in this room right now simply to re- simply refuse to acknowledge that God is not looking down on you with anger and disappointment because of your sin last night. Or because of your sin this morning. Because you didn't do your list of duties last week. You have hope in the one day I'm going to be someone great as a Christian. And until then, God is just enduring. And we're falling flat on our faces because we've given ourselves a list of requirements a mile long that we will never live up to. Your right standing with God is not something that you do. It's something that has been done, has been done fully in Christ. Now, I don't want you to leave here thinking I'm telling you not to read your Bible or listen to sermons or go to Bible studies or whatever. Those are good, right, and important things that Christians should want in their lives. But listen, here's the dividing line. Those things will not and cannot save you. Only Jesus So a few questions and we'll be done. How do you define your relationship before God? What is it based on? Seriously, I want you to think hard about that. I don't want the Bible answer. I don't want to hear you repeat to me what I've told you if it's not true. Be honest. What are you depending on for a right relationship before God? If I ask you, tell me what's good about you. What will you say? Does God love you? Why? What's the look on God's face when he sees you? If you answer any of these questions wrong, you don't understand grace. You're bound to religion. A right relationship before God is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. And that's it. 
There's nothing inherently good about me or you. The only good in our lives is that which is wrought by God in Christ Jesus on our behalf. And as a result of that, God loves us because he loves his son. He's not grimacing. He's not scowling. He's not tisking us. He's smiling. He's delighted because he delights in his son. And if we are in Christ Jesus, he delights in us. If you leave that central reality, if you forget the centrality of the cross of Christ in your life as a Christian, your only other option is religion. It's futile. It is self-righteousness. Don't work to earn. Rest in Jesus. Some of you here this morning are really depending hard on your goodness. You're really depending hard on those cosmic scales because you don't understand the gospel. Jesus commands you to repent of your sins and believe on him as the way, the truth, and the life. I'm pleading with all of us to trust in the finished work of Christ. Don't try and clean yourself up to come to the cross. You will never be clean enough to stand before God in your own merit. You don't need to clean yourself up. That's the work that Christ has done. Obedience comes later. Be justified. Repent. Believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the work of Jesus. Our solid and sure foundation that we need not strive to do anything to earn your favor. Because by your grace you have called your people unto yourself. You've regenerated our hearts and you've given us new life to live. And I pray you help us to live it for your glory. Centered on the cross. Understanding that anything good in our lives comes from you. And that our only right standing before you is to plead the blood of Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us to not cast aside the gospel as the entryway into Christianity by which we move on to bigger and better things. Help us to see the great reality that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and rose from the dead as the all in all of our faith and our hope and our assurance. Do not let it grow old in our hearts. Help us to walk in obedience, not as a desire to justify ourselves, not as a desire to be seen as righteous, but as a desire to know more of you, to know more of Jesus who's been righteous for us that we would understand 
with full assurance that you love us, that you care for us, and that you delight in who Christ is for us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that if anyone here today does not know Jesus, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would awaken them from the dead and give them new life. Call them to repent and believe. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.